Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right, welcome to the Day One Leadership Podcast, everyone. My guest today is a veteran of several senior leadership roles in the financial services industry, including Vice President at TD Canada Trust. And for our American listeners, that's one of Canada's largest banks. He was the president and CEO of Phylogix, a technology provider to the Canadian mortgage industry. And under his leadership, Phylogix saw revenues increase by over 2,000%. He acquired and integrated 10 other companies, and he actually increased their market share from 7% to over 50%. Now, currently, he is the president and CEO of Kinetics Limited, which provides over a million quotes per year to customers looking for insurance and other financial products and goes on to connect customers to the providers of those quotes. I am thrilled to welcome Yuz Basada to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's it's an absolute pleasure. I love chatting with people who have gone through a, a different forms of leadership voyages. And I'm going to open up by asking you a question I haven't directly asked any of our other guests, I just realized. But what would you say is your personal leadership philosophy? My personal leadership philosophy is... Um Probably just that situations and people are different and that you can't have one can program for every situation or even two or three. You got to be multi. Um, so, you know, I, I think most people would say I'm fair, I'm balanced. Maybe I'm a nice guy. Maybe I sell vision well, all that. But it's really about trying to read the situation best you can and applying the best style forward because. There are times in history, as we know, where leaders needed to be very forceful and very um, non-discussion. Here's what we're going to do. Just get out and do it. And other times it's consensus building and, um, and, and, and getting the larger decision made by a larger group. And, and I think for me, it's just a, a trying to be really good at reading which leadership style works well. I much prefer that of consensus and getting the team to come to conclusion and, and move to the right answer. Mm-hmm. But there are times that just won't, won't work and you just have to move it. Especially, you know, there are some decisions that are small and if you try to make everything by consensus, the company will never move. Yeah. So it's just about choosing the style with each person, with each situation, with each company, with each client, with each supplier and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's interesting because I remember for a long time, especially when you're working when, you know, when I started younger, a lot of your leadership opportunities are volunteer, right? Because if you're 21 years old, you don't tend to be in charge of a lot of organizations. So it was always about consensus. I thought this was the only way that you're going to get people, especially if you're not paying them to pay attention and be a part of it. And then I remember reading Jim Collins, the the brilliant management leadership writer, and he said, consensus decisions are often at odds with intelligent decisions. So how do you get that balance? How do you find the balance between getting things done and recognizing that you wanna be driven by making people feel engaged, but recognizing that if if you're really overly committed to consensus, you're not gonna get anything done. How How did you navigate and discover the best way of approaching that? Uh, whenever it was a big decision, a strategy or, or, or uh, an acquisition or something of some size, for sure I wanted consensus. And part of it is, you know, if, if you find consensus painful, it means you've pre-made up your mind. And then maybe you're not really in consensus. You just want to get them to the finish line. So you've got to go in with your mind open. There may be points of view that, that you haven't considered. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't call consensus is that I've decided I just got to get them all on side. Mm-hmm. I may have a strong point of view, and but you've got to be a good listener. And, um, you know, there's tons of data to show the smartest person in the room is not going to outsmart a group's decision. It's a question of, of time every time. I, you may outsmart them many times, but not every time. It's a question of the time invested in getting people up to speed and understanding the full situation. Um, and again, as I already said, it's, it's all situational. I remember at Phylogics, there were maybe uh, two or three times on big decisions we couldn't reach consensus. Um, and I always considered that my failure, um, that the team got so divided and we could have stayed there another you know, three weeks and nobody was going to move. Everybody was just 
making their point a little harder. That is that happened rarely when I was leading, but it happened. And I usually said, I am really disappointed that I can't get everyone to come to the right decision. So I'm going to decide. But to me, this is my failure that I could not get everyone to listen a little better so that we can come to the right decision. As I say, it only happened two, maybe three times in my seven-year career there. Most of the times, you know, and, 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 and if you're facilitating the meeting where you're trying to get consensus, I think a big part of it is just to make sure people are listening instead of getting ready to with their response. Mm-hmm. It, it's very sort of, I'm sure even in your volunteer days, you saw this, where people are just saying the same thing over and over without listening to what the other guy um, said. And I, I remember many companies ago, um, I was with a company called First Line, and sometimes people dug in so hard that the facilitator we had um, made it a bit of a ground rule. Before you state your next point, you must say what the last guy said, and they must say, I'm satisfied you heard my point properly before making your next point. So it forced you to listen. So I said, yeah, I heard what you said, but here's what the important, tell me what I said. Uh, well, you said, I think we should go left because of A, B, and C. No, I didn't say that. You know, I said we should go left if A is correct, not B and C. Oh, and that is sort of, you, you know, would break the conversation a lot. When you force the other person to hear what was going on. But these are extreme cases. I mean, if every meeting sounds like that, you don't have a very good listening team. Yeah. But just in extreme cases where people aren't listening and you need an important decision made, you know, there are tools like that to, to use. But the data shows that if you have a consensus decision, people are going to be behind it a lot, a lot stronger. Um, but other times, again, situationally, I'm sorry to keep using that word already, but situationally, you may have a team that's just not strong enough, that just doesn't get the ins and the outs or just doesn't get it. And then sometimes you just have to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And they're very good at executing. You know, and they don't mind. They don't feel like, you know, you just overruled them. They, sometimes they need to understand why. Other, other times they don't. Yeah. And I, what I like is that you're recognizing it and don't apologize because I think it's great to hear someone say, cause we get these inundated with these ideas. Here's how you're, how, here's how it's done. Here's the template. And one of the things like I agree with you that I found is that one of the, I think I forget it's Emil Dirksen might've said it. I have one great inflexible rule and that is to be flexible at all times. And I remember the first yeah. time I heard it thinking, Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Like have a philosophy but that also means it's going to be constantly be adjusted. Let me ask you this. When we say consensus, because this is something that's always really important to me, like what are we talking about? In your mind, when you say, I'm seeking consensus, there are times where you can't get it. How would you define the word if someone said to you, I'm, explain exactly what you mean. Like if the team said, okay, we're seeking consensus, but tell us what that means. What do you tell them? It means that uh, you are willing to carry the decision and you are willing to support it like it's your own. Even though you may have come in with a different position, even though you may still think your position's correct, but the, the, you're willing to carry it. You understand the issues may not be exactly what you wanted, but you will carry it. And to me, this is very important that if you, if, if there's concern, and, and we're talking about a big decision. We're not talking about, you know, what coffee brand we bring in, you know, but we're talking about the big decision, an acquisition, a divestiture, a, you know, which way the company's strategically moving. If you, um, you know, there are times when I felt there was a little reluctant consensus and, and, and we spent a little bit of time saying, when somebody asks you about this, it's got to sound like it was your idea. Then, it, then you've got true consensus. The team is marching to, it was your idea. If you say, well, I went along with it, although I think it's stupid, but the rest of them, this is what they wanted to do. That's not consensus. You know, the consensus is here's where we're going and here's why. You know, even if you, you know, even you, you went in with a different point of view and you still came out with a different point. So it's willing to support the decision as though it was your own, even if you still have. We, we, we actually have a sheet of paper saying what consensus is in the fifth rule. So I've always joked and called it the fifth. The fifth rule is I'm willing to support even though I still feel I feel strongly about my original position. So I take the fifth. It's a fast way of saying it. I'm going to support. I'm going to walk out like it's my decision, even though. I still think mine was a, was was the best point of view, and I think that's very important for a team, right? Because if it, if the employees and a team see a broken leadership, then that's the beginning of a lot of problems. 
Now, when was you, you know, I listed off off the top of the, of the podcast, the many different leadership roles you've had, and that's just, you know, the ones at the very top. Let's go. Cause a big part of the podcast is day one. Let's take it back to the beginning. So what would you say, like looking back, not just career, but in life, what would you say was your first leadership role? If I had to ask you, pick the time in your life where you were the first time where you're like, yeah, that was a leadership role for me. I was, uh, let me think, I was 16 or 17 pumping gas um, at a, uh, it was a summer and weekend job Mm -hmm. to earn my my first car. All I did it for was to earn my car and to pay for gas and maybe a little bit of party money on the weekend, but that was um, what I did. And it was... uh, it was a advanced gas station at the time. It was uh, we had to wash the windows. We we had to wear the same uniforms. Yeah, we we had to it, we we meant to dazzle them with uh, with service. So it was is mostly students, but there were some people that were full time in 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 the place. And um, I remember uh, being at, one guy had to be the leader of the shift. Which, which had the great responsibility of making sure the books balanced. So if the other guy stole 10 bucks, I had to pay 10 bucks because uh-huh. you have to balance at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, so I was the leader of a whopping one, maybe two persons at a time. Um, and, you know, um, every leader had their own way of doing it. Some said, I only control the cash since I'm going to pay. Others said, you do it, bring it in at the end of the day. You know, all, all these different uh, ways of doing it. So it was my first test. I didn't know anything about leadership then. I just did my job and, and hope they did theirs. So I think in the absence of any guidance on what to be a good leader, the style I went to was by example. I worked hard. I smiled hard. I washed everybody's windows. I jumped out the second the cart pulled in. Like I, that, That's all I knew and hope that that rubbed off. And sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it didn't. So how would you say your philosophy has changed from that first job to now? Well, yeah, you know, it, it, I didn't know anything, and I think that might have been easier. The more I learn about leadership, the more I learn how complex it is, and there are no canned answers. And that's why, you know, I, I read Jim Collins' book that you're talking about, um, but that there are no can, canned answers. Even one of the early management books I read was called In Search of Chaos. I don't know if you read that one. It's yeah. now. But almost every one of those companies, it was about, it was companies that are very successful you know, 10 years later, most of them were failing. You know, so leadership changes, companies have to change with it. Um, and I got most of my um, modern day leadership, not, not the gas station, from a company called First Line, from an amazing leader called Brendan Calder. And Brendan was a guy who taught me about how to take leadership and process and put them together, how to put a process around leadership. And it involved, you know, starting with a company strategy and it involved setting the goals for the senior team and then each member took away their objective and then you take it to your team. So it was a process of how to get the right things done. And um, as part of it, there was um, a course, a five-day course, where you go learn about your own leadership style and you learn, you know, what... And it had the actual lesson of situation that the, a perfect leader can adjust to the situation. Mm-hmm. But it talks about your dominant style and it talks about your less dominant style when you're, when you're getting frustrated, what you wind up doing. And, and it was very good at sort of self-assessing myself and my own team so that it helps you work with each other. But again, it's not perfect. It's just a model. It's just something to get your brain going. And I, and I still say people are the most complicated part of a business. It's never the product we make or marketing or, oh, that's easy. It's the people and, and trying to figure out what makes them tick and what makes them loyal to the company and what makes them stay and what makes them work hard. And, 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 and there's no formula or else, you know, somebody would be a billionaire selling that formula. And, and it's interesting because I guess that's exactly what you're saying is that I would like in my mind pops into my head. Hey, now ask him, okay, well, what keeps people connected to the company? But really my guess is your answer is it's going to depend on the person, right? So there's no hard and fast rule there either, except the idea that it is at its core, the people, and you've got to take the time to figure out what your particular group needs. That's, I think that's right. And you know, you you can generalize sometimes you can sometimes say, uh, Gen Xers, you know, or, oh, millennials, or, you know, and, and, and so uh, Kinetics works with a lot of uh, 
millennials. And they are smart, but they will work on their own terms. They're not going to give you 60 hours a week. They will work what you pay them for. They'll do a good job. They'll do a really good job. But, you know, motivating them and, and much more than, than mine, my generation, and I'm, I'm officially a yuppie, I guess, um, is lifestyle balance. You know, when I was 20-something, you worked really hard to achieve success, and that's what lifestyle balance was. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't worry about um, getting home at 5 o'clock to, you know, make sure you're sitting in the backyard um, or play with your family, and, and I think the millennials got it right. Lifestyle balance is much more important, um, but you've got to learn that they're motivated differently than someone who's – now, again, you can't generalize. Every person is different. I'm not talking about every millennial here. That would be a huge mistake. You know, we're just sort of generalizing a little bit, but there are, you know, there are many exceptions to every rule and every generation. You know, there are lazy yuppies. There are hardworking yuppies. There are lazy Gen Xers. There are hardworking Gen Xers. There are lazy millennials and so on and so on. Um, so sometimes you can generalize. So how um, I can take that, for example, is my office now at Kinetics looks completely different than an office would have 30 years ago because times have changed. Mm-hmm. It's an open environment. There's a games room. There's a place you can play ping pong and Xbox and, and, uh, and billiards and, and foosball. And, and none of that existed 20, 30 years ago. What was more important then is offices. You know, and, and, and the fact that you had your privacy and status, the more senior you were, the bigger the office you got, you know, and, and you know, those things mattered then. They don't matter now. You know, so you have to change with those things. That doesn't mean you, you figured out how to motivate them, but it's important that if they are about work-life balance, that where they're spending 40, 45 hours a week is a place they want to come to. Mm-hmm. Much more than 20, 30 years ago. It didn't matter as much. It was just about, you know, success and getting recognized. It's interesting because we talk, that phrase work-life balance is always one that I've struggled with a little bit. And I found that the greatest leaders, particularly within organizations, what they do is they recognize, particularly among young people, the the desire for work-life balance. But they start to recognize that maybe if what we can do is create a work environment where people don't see it as something that you have to escape from or you have to counterbalance. So the idea of work-life balance is that, oh, well, work is is this kind of negative thing and you need to counterbalance it with positive. But what I found is that the greatest leaders of organizations start to say, well, why do we have to make this place where people come to work something that you have to counterbalance with good? What if we made it good in and of itself? It, it, how, would, how have you started to approach that as you talk about the changes over the that you've had to make, how have you tried to make work for your people a place that they get excited to go to? Yeah, I mean, I think you just said it. Um, you know, the, the office of today, the office I'm in, and the office, um, and, and I, it's funny, I've used the same designers for 20 years. And, um, you know, I sit down with them at the beginning and we talk about what our average employee looks like, you know, for 20 years. And it has so substantially changed. And um, so open environment, it's more airy, it's more light. Um, it, you know, the um, cool technology is more important than, than, the, than the style of office they have. So those who want Macs get Macs. Uh, you know, those who don't, don't. Um, I, I talked about this games room. Uh, well, it's also got Xbox. It's got a TV. So any sporting event uh, going on, our, our kitchen our kitchen has TV running all the time, uh, CP24, so you always know what's going on. If there's a big sporting event, you know people are going to stop and go watch. Don't let it bug you as yeah. a leader. That's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, if, if, uh, if the Raptors are playing at uh, 3 o'clock on a Friday, except 3 o'clock on a Friday, nobody's going to be working. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're going to go there. You know, so it's just adjusting with that, but um, they're also, uh, you know, uh, because it's exactly as it is. You can't replicate your home. You can't make it exactly the same, but I recognize they're going to spend more time here than they are at home. So might as well make it an environment where they enjoy showing up. Otherwise, someone else will. You know. And when we, uh, when we as, um, as a team go to some clients' offices that are still the old school, man, it feels like a jail now to me. And I used to work in those. Yeah. You know, really high partitions, offices. You can't hear a word because nobody's talking here. You know, the partitions are no higher than, than my chest. So when you stand up, you can see everybody. 
you know, and you can hear sound all the time. And I think that's important. Interaction is good. And, um, you know, we have, um, we have, uh, beer cart on Fridays. We have parties that are more relevant to millennials than, than, you know, in the old school, we don't have a formal, you know, Christmas slash holiday party. We have a party in February called Festivus and it is fun and light and, you know, the rest uh, of us. Yeah, that's exactly, you know it. Um, so, it's customizing that so that you don't, you know, a big test. And I've talked in front of employees at Phylogics, at Kinetics, anywhere I've ever worked. Everybody inevitably has a Sunday night dinner with some family member. I'm sure you have, Drew. Yeah. And if someone says, what do you do? What, what do you do? I'm sorry, I don't know where you work. What do you do? And if the answer is anything like, oh, it's still Sunday. Let's not talk about it. Monday's coming too fast. I'm still trying to relax. I, I, you know, let's, let's just move on. Let's talk about the Raptors. Let's talk about the Blue Jays, you know, but I, I don't want to talk about work. To me, that's a very sad sign of, of my accomplishments of creating the culture for the employees. Mm-hmm. If that's how they sound. I'd much rather they say, we're changing the way people buy insurance. We're making it easy for them to find the cheapest and best insurance. That's what we do. If the Sunday night dinner conversation sounds like that, then I'm doing a good job. You know, because then people are excited and more excited to go to work. I talk about this all the time. In fact, in front of all the employees, I say, if you sound like the first guy, maybe you should find another job. I like that. The Sunday night dinner culture test. Yeah. Like it's a really practical way that if you're someone who creates culture in an organization, like ask yourself that the Sunday night dinner culture test, if someone asks them about work the night before they go back, are they excited to talk about it? For free, Drew, go on Uh, next Sunday night dinner and ask the person you're sitting with. What, what do you do for work and see how they answer? I love you, that. It'll be a test of how good the culture is working. I love it. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I love talking about culture. Let's talk about sort of you and, and your, I love talking to leaders about their evolution of, of their life by saying this hypothetical about going back to day one and, and day one for whatever reason that we've just picked, I've just picked the first day of high school. I'm like, cause that's kind of when you start to realize, Oh my gosh, I got to navigate a social world on my own. And let's face it, it's, it's not the most fun for those four years, but imagine you're, you're sitting down across that from that version of yourself on the first day of high school. And they look at you and they're just like, look, this seems pretty scary. This whole life thing. Can you give me three things about the world? And that can be about life, about love, about business. Can you just give me three tips that are going to make my life better? And I know that you might want to say, look, learn them yourself. But if that version of you looked at you and said, give me three things, three things about life, about business, about relationships that is just going to make the next 40 years of my life better. What are three tips that you give yourself on day one? Uh, And I'm assuming even though I knew they actually happen. (laughs) It's one of my advices. Um, So... um, you know, in no particular order, because I think the last one I'm going to tell you is the most important one, but okay. in no particular order, uh, what comes to mind is, first of all, you know, work hard. And the definition of work hard is you're not always going to get a job you love, you know, but if you do, be the best at it ever. And I really mean that. I mean, at gas station, there are only so many combinations of what you can do. You walk up to a person, they tell you how much gas they want, you put it in, you don't mess up the order. You wash their window, you get the money, and you're done. But how do you be the best at it? You know, so I always um, w- would say, no matter how unhappy or happy you are in, in your job, do it to the best of your ability because it's a very long game. And a, a little job gets you a little recognition, which is get you one rung up the ladder. And if you and if you do really well and outshine and and so on, you go up another rung, and so on and so forth. I never in high school had ambitions of being a president of a company or I, I just wasn't built that way. I just oh, was a hardworking guy. And then I felt, I, you know, I earned $3 and 25 cents an hour back then. And I felt they're giving me money. I, I need to um, earn it. Like I thank you, you know, you're giving me money. So I got to put in to make it worthwhile for you. So I would say that's the first thing is always, no matter no matter what job you get or don't get, uh, sorry, what job you get, whether you love it or don't love it, work hard, you know, outshine, outperform. And, and that does not mean backstab. And you just be a star in your, in your job, you know, cooperate with people is a big part of it for sure that people say you're, you're, you're a good guy. Um, so that's one. Um, 
The other one, you know, I'm a member of something called YPO. Are you familiar with YPO? I'm not. Okay. YPO stands for Young Presidents Organization. I'm actually lying to you. I'm now WPO, World President Organization. Because once you reach 50, you're not considered a young president anymore. (laughs) Uh, You go to World President Organization. But YPO is... If your company meets certain criteria, it's an association and they bring educational material and you get a chance to bounce off other presidents, um, some of the things going on in your business and, you know, they help you or your life or whatever. So YPO always says there's sort of three prongs to life. So when you said about three, I'm trying to give advice in each of these three buckets. There's personal, there's family, and there's business. And, And those sort of are the three things that you run your life. So I just gave you the business one. In family, it's just, you know, Balance your family because if you're going to work hard, and I, I certainly am guilty of this, you're on airplanes, you work long hours, you attend a lot of functions, and you blink and you go, when did the kids grow up? What happened? Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got to be able to balance. And you know, as as many people have said in the past, the things you're going to regret on your deathbed is is stuff related to your personal and your family, not business. So. You know, I always worked very hard at attending the kids' concerts and, you know, all these things that were hugely important to them that were very easy to miss because my job is so important and the world needed me so critically on that afternoon and the world just wasn't going to move unless I was there. So to always put that uh, forward, um, the, the family, to make time for the things that are very important to your family, your kids, you know, kindergarten graduation is hugely important that you see your dad in the audience way more important than, you know, taking an extra day doing a deal, you know, somewhere. Um, And the personal one is the one that I think I would spend the most time advising myself about. Um, YPO says when you time for a typical YPO personality, a president of a company, we're very driven, we're very um, uh, A-types. The one that drops first when you don't have time is personal. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that drops second is family. We're so driven to make our businesses successful. And I have dropped way too many times the personal. Uh, looking after myself, working out, getting in the gym. You know, I'll go for two years of being really religious at it, and then I'll go for five years without it. Um, and then it has long-term consequence that you are really a machine. And if you're taking care of yourself personally, it has a positive effect on your family and, and your business. And not to let that go. Uh, that's the one, you know, if I could talk to my 14-year-old self, I know that's the one I'm going to fail at. I know the other two, I'm pretty good. Um, so it's that uh, balance again. It's it's not one or two things. It's just keeping, um, keeping your soul, your mind, your spirit high so they can perform as best as they can. When you're 20-something or 30-something, you don't your body is so strong and, you know, you have so much energy. I, there are jobs I worked 80 hours a week for a year and a half straight. You know, in hindsight, that was crazy. But I could do it and I didn't feel any consequence to it. You know, back then, it takes a long time for the consequence to come up. It's interesting. I was, uh, I forget where I heard it, but I heard something, you know how when you hear something incredibly simple that makes total sense, but it just never occurred to you? I yeah. remember I had a CEO, I forget it was at a banquet somewhere, and he said, people keep asking, why do I take an hour to go to the gym every day? And he said, besides the fact that it makes you feel good and there's all this, he goes, let me just break this down for all of you A-type personalities out there. When do you make your most money? Like, it's at the end of your career. Like, per year, for most yeah. people, the most lucrative time of their life, if you just want to look at it in terms of cash, in terms of you know being able mm-hmm. to acquire, he goes, it's the end of your career. That's when you're in the jobs that make the most money. And the healthier you are, the longer the end of your career is. And he said, I think we still kind of think as if I'm not done at 65. And he goes, every hour I go to the gym at 38 is more time that I can spend when I'm at my absolute best, when I'm wisest, when I'm in the most influential position, when I'm making the most. He goes, so he goes, you're trying to build your career. He goes, what every day I go to the gym is lengthening it. And I never thought of that. He just said, very wise. yeah, the, the longer, the healthier you are in your whole life. Like, and it wasn't just the money. He said, you were so much better at your job at the end of it. So I completely agree with him. Um, 
you know, the wisdom of forecasting what you're going to be like at 60 or 65, that's called wisdom. Because when you're young, you know, I, I watch it in my old children, you know, they don't think they need to exercise even now when they're, they're 18 and 15. But, um, you know, because they can't forecast. They don't know the consequence 20, 30 years later. And I was there too. Um, so I agree with him completely. I, I agree with his assessment. He's even wiser than my answer. You know, mine is about during the time you're 38 or 43 or 45 or 60 or whatever, if your body is functioning well, you are better serving every other aspect of your life, your family, your business, you handle stress better. You know, there's a billion books written about stress and exercise. It's not just that. It's just it's a long-term game. And, you know, everybody uses analogies. It's like a car. You can own a car and drive it to death, but you keep tuning it up and doing the right things for it, buying right tires, it'll live a lot longer. What, uh, back when you were raising money for, uh, at the gas station, what, what kind of car were you trying to buy? Uh, my first car, and I'm very proud of it, was a 1978 Volkswagen Rabbit. A Volkswagen Rabbit. <laughs> it was the hottest thing I ever owned at that time. <laughs> yeah. Those things last forever, too. Uh, it was, um, in hindsight, it was a lemon. Oh, really? My first car, and I didn't care. It <laughs> took me from A to B, and, and uh, it was manual transmission, and I d- had no idea how to drive manual transmission right up to when I walked up to the dealer. Oh, I nicely mean, I, had, done. I had a small concept, but it was... It was, you know, I stalled it six times on the way out, but I loved that car. <laughs> so you, you mentioned you have a 14 year old, 15 year old, oh, yeah. 15 year 18 old. and 15, 18 yeah. and 15. So if someone walked up to, uh, to your kids and said, uh, your dad successful dude, hall of famer, like you're literally a hall of famer in your industry. Uh, what would you say are the, what would you say is the number one key value that drives your father? What do you hope your kids, if someone said to them, what, what's the, if you had to pick the, the one value above all others that drives your dad personally and in business, what do you hope your kids say you stand for? Um, well, let's assume you're going to ask them that after the teenage years, because they don't really have the teenage years. They don't, you know, parents are just parents. They don't look at all this. Um, I hope they. I hope they say that is kind, that is honest, that treats people well. Um, you know, I have lots of friends. I'm very. I, I say it's one of my most fortunate aspects. I have lots and lots of friends. I'm very lucky that way. So often we're somewhere and we run, we've been in Hawaii and we've run into someone we know. We've been in the weirdest places and we run someone we know with my kids, and they always say, "Daddy, you have so many friends," and I said, "You will too." You know. So I would say they say. Those kind of qualities, they'll, they'll be around honest or kind or, um, you know, or, uh, but the, the reality is, you know, when it comes to th- those values, you know, I, I don't think anyone can limit themselves to three. And if they mm-hmm. can, God bless them. I, I think I'm going to go back to my same routine as your first questions you asked me. It's situational. You know, if, if I have a friend whose business is in trouble, who needs help, getting it going, I may exude certain values to him or her uh, around getting them some help. Um, you know, whether it's advice help or, or tough love help or honesty uh, versus um, someone where things are rocking and rolling and they just want to have a good time. You may exude different values, just a fun guy with them. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think... You know, you can't, if I say, oh, my true values are honesty and integrity. And if you, if you apply that in every, I don't think it's applicable in every single situation, you know, being honest in every situation can backfire on you. Um, not that you ever would be dishonest, but you would might treat it differently, you know, uh, when you're telling someone something they don't want to hear. Um, so, but I think the qualities that my kids would see as their father are around, hopefully, who knows, right? They may listen to this one day and go, oh, my God, this is so wrong. But, you know, hopefully around being kind and, and being honest and being, um, you know, I, I tell them often, I don't want to lie to you. What do you want to know? You know, and then you tell them what they want to know. And, you know, but I'm still a parent of teenage kids right now. And right now they say he's annoying and he's bossy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but hopefully as they grow it'll be back to these basic principles. I sometimes wonder, it's interesting. I never asked one of our guests that particular question before. It's just that you mentioned, uh, you know, that you were a dad. And I, I sometimes wonder, I'm going to start asking it again because I'm wondering how many people 
have to assume the answer. Like, it's almost as if, you know, I, I want to, well, can I call up, uh, call up your kids and be like, Hey, we're doing a podcast. Your dad answered this question. I'm going to ask them now. I wonder how many people be surprised. Like yeah. it's, it, it's interesting that we make that assumption, but it, we, it gets to be an odd I question. It's a good question. Yeah. But I also think how old they are may, may have a different answer. Like, you know, if you ask a 35 year old about their dad, they've had time to reflect about their parents. They probably have a more accurate view mm-hmm. of their parents. And in teenage years, it's, you know, come on, study. You got to get, you, know, you you say you want to go to this university, you better get the, so you're annoying. Yeah. <laughs> you get the, get the marks, you know, have you done your homework? You know, there's sort of an annoying phase. And then when they're eight years old, it might be another set. I think it's a really good question, but it would demonstrate my point. It's situational. Yeah. How you treat your kids as teenagers, not the same way you treat them when they're eight is not the same way you treat them when they're 30. Although I've never had 30 year olds yet, but <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be different. It's going to move to a, a deeper relationship. The, uh, what's the, the Mark Twain quote, uh, when I was a lad of 14, my father was so ignorant. I could ho- hardly stand to have him around now that I'm 21. It amazes me how much he's learned in seven years. <laughs> Well, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and, and I wish you had another line for 30 because, you know, that's another sort of growth period. Um, it, I, I love it. it it's it, let me ask you this. Um, that version of your 14 year old self again, uh, you, you're talking about being annoying. And, and one of the things I always say is that imagine you could imagine you could give that 14 year old version of yourself one question and, you know, in this hypothetical that for the rest of their life, they will make sure they answer that question every day. And you want to make sure that it makes them do something each day. So I usually say, start it with, uh, what have you done today? Or how did you today? If you could give yourself one question back on day one and know that for the rest of your life, you were going to make sure that answering it was a priority every day. What question would you give yourself to, to make sure that you do something every day? I think it's around the personal take care of yourself again. I think it would be, how did you take care of yourself today? Mm -hmm. I I think um, certainly people who know me would say I'm very unselfish to the point where it's hurt me sometimes. Yeah. Um, So I think it's how did you take care of yourself today, whether it's physically or emotionally or because that I drop way too often for way too long to take care of everything else. You know, I'm, I'm very... I love my business like it's a person when I work here and I want to make sure it's taken care of. The shareholders are taken care of. The employees are taken care of. Very, very important to me. It's an entity that is in my soul. It's just not a numbered company on a piece of paper. And of course, my family, my mother is my, my, uh, my mentor in life. And she's always, she's had an amazing life of her own. We won't get into it, but she's always been amazing to the kids. So my mother, my brother, my sister, my kids, we have a very large family, uncles, cousins, they're all very important to me. So the one that's always sacrificed is the personal one. So if someone said, hey, what are you doing Saturday? I really, really need you. Uh, I've got a problem and I really, really need to, I jump, you know, because they have a problem. I never say, oh, I'm sorry, I've, I've booked a ski day and I need to go ski, you know. Um, so it would be that one. How did you take care of yourself today? I like, that's the one you're going to fall, fail at the most. And I like, because as you said it, I realized something. I think the question that drove me for a lot of my life and a lot of other folks I've talked to is what, like, how did I take care of my future today? And I think that's an important question, but I think we yep. get a little too obsessed with it. And like, how did I take care of my future today? Which is why you cancel, uh, you know, you cancel things for your kids because, oh, well, we want to make sure that on my last day of work, I've accomplished all of these things. And so I wonder if we drive ourselves with the question, how did I take care of my future today more than we say, how did I take care of myself today? Uh, and so I, I just realized, as you said that, that that's really probably what drove me for a lot of my life. Everything I did on any given day was about some day down the road. And it was very rarely about what needed to get done, you know, for myself right now, not realizing that who you are right now is who creates your future, right? Well, I'm going to guess you're exceptional, Drew, that you're in the top five, 10 percentile of thinking that far ahead. Um, and that's why my advice to me is because I wasn't, you know, I, I was just, helpful and worked hard at the moment without, you know, thinking 30 years in advance. So I, I think you're right. You know, um, you're right. And you, you, we need to preach it, but it's very difficult to preach to a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old. 
because they're they're living in their moment. Uh, you know, like I said, there's an exception to everything. I've met some incredible, incredible teenagers that are going to run this world. Um, but it's also very difficult because the bulk of teenagers think they know everything. I did. I wasn't. A, I was very respectful of my parents and friends and everything. But I thought I got it. I get it. Mm-hmm. I've grown up. You know how little we knew is now what you know, <laughs> how little we knew then. And I wonder, an 80-year-old looks at me and go, how little you know, you know. But uh, so we're always learning, growing. But at that time, you, you're confident. You don't think you can die. You do stupid things. You jump off, you know, cliffs, you, whatever, you know, because you think you're, you know, invincible and, and, and you're great. So it's how do you penetrate that this advice is really important and you need to do it is, is the challenge. But that's what I would give myself as advice. I, I just, uh, it's interesting as you, I'm chatting with you here and this whole hypothetical I always give people, you know, if you're sitting down across from yourself at 14, I wonder, uh, maybe I'll ask you this cause I've never done it before, but it's hard to remember that version of yourself. I know. But what advice do you think maybe that 14 year old would give to you? Cause I just realized we're talking about, you know, looking back and, and recognizing the things that we know now, but I wonder, are there things that we forget as we get a little older that those teens, cause you're talking about the ways that we thought and some of it's bad, but I start to wonder, like, I wonder what kind of advice that 14 year old self would give to us. Like, what do you think your 14 year old self after listening to you, give your advice might look back and say, Hey, don't forget this too, old man. Yeah. You know, I, that's a good question. Um, so it's a good question because everybody talks about, oh, I, mentoring and, you know, I've done this, I've done that. So people want me to mentor them. And, and well, five years ago, I did reverse mentoring. I took a 20-year-old brilliant girl who understands social media better than anyone I know and made her mentor me. And also, your question is sort of along that. If if my 14-year-old me saw me, what would they say? Oh, my God, you look old. You know, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. You know, I think, again, um, you hit on 14 all the time, which happens to be the age I came to Canada. So I was going through a lot of, um, I came at 13, but I was going through a lot of, um, you know, change, mm-hmm. different country, parents divorced, this, that. But that aside, you know, the, the, the will of a 13 and 14-year-old, I think, would be helpful. Still have fun, you know. Um, <clears throat> there's somebody who asked the question, when was the last time you had Pure, pure fun. Just not a care in the world. You know what the number one answer is for people that? No. It's in their single digits. I was eight, I was nine, I was six, I was seven, which is kind of sad. <laughs> you know, that's the fact that that's just pure, pure happiness, not a worry. Because right now, I don't know what you do for fun, but, you know, I, I could go boating at my cottage. I'm having a great time. But the back of my mind is thinking about this work problem or, you know, this problem or that problem. You're not totally settled. Yeah. You know, so that's why meditation is growing like crazy. Yoga is growing like crazy. All these things to try to get your mind settled. Um, but the number one answer around that is in single digit years. You, we had fun as kids. We were just super happy. We didn't have to worry, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe the 14 year old me would remind me of some of that. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, I'm, I'm thinking, I actually feel guilty if you, you, I think sometimes we stop ourselves short of it because I mean, yesterday I went for a walk this gorgeous day. Uh, smoking a cigar, which makes me very happy. And I just stopped at this park as I walked by and I lay down under the tree and like stared up, you know how the sun comes through the leaves, but you're still in the shade. And I remember thinking, yeah. And then as I started to slip into that sort of, yeah, life is good. There was this little voice being like, oh man, you got to get home. Like, don't take too long because you got to do 10,000 or 15,000 steps today, et cetera. It's almost as if when we start to slip, there's that little voice that goes, Hey, like, you're not supposed to have pure joy anymore. So it's interesting that there's a block almost. Yeah, life gets in the way, Yeah, you know, of, of pure joy. I mean, you know, but we need to do more of those things. I'm trying to do more of those things, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever I can squeeze in of trying to, you know, for you it was a cigar under the leaves, whatever it is for me, that just you try to disconnect for a few minutes because as you and I well know, all the problems are waiting. None of them is going away. But you're always trying, you know, when you're a teenager, you're trying to, all of a sudden you're feeling the pressure to get good marks, to get into the best school. Then what are you going to do for your career? I have no idea. I'm 16, I'm 17. I don't know what I want to do for a living. 
then you go in university and you kind of start partying and then you got the pressure of getting a job and you get a job, you got to prove yourself and, oh, then you got debt, you got to, you know, and it goes on and you buy a house and, oh, you got to get married. Oh, now you have children. Oh, my God. You know, like you're, you're, <laughs> the, the, the worries just don't, uh, don't go away. That's why the most common answer is in single digits because you didn't have to think about any of that. What a great question. Like that's a, like I'm going to sort of sit and reflect on that. When was the last time that I was just purely, truly, who cares about anything but this happy? Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, you know, obviously we got to get that average up because <laughs> life can't be about a very happy zero to 10 and then a worrisome rest of your life, you know? So, um, but, but anyway, so I think back, back to your original question, maybe 14 year old me would see I've disconnected from that. And, and trust me, I think I'm a fun guy, but you're always worrying and thinking about things. And, you know, maybe 14 year old me would see through me and say, uh, you need more fun. I like it. Let me, let me close with this. Uh, I'm always interested in, in what people say to this question. We are fed, especially in the world of, of leadership and uh, you go to conferences and there's always a quote up on the screen that the, the whatever speaker is saying, you know? Um, so I always like to ask this, I call them cultural cliches, these little bits of wisdom that go up on walls or that people repeat all the time that, Tell me one you disagree with. Like, is there any sort of leadership mantra or quotation or people think thing that people repeat sagely that when you hear it, you're like, no, like not at all. Is there any one of those that sort of always sort of irk you when you hear it? I'm always interested to hear people's favorite anti advice where they're sort of like this thing that people keep saying, I don't buy it. Um. Okay, so that's a good question. I, I sort of have two parts to that, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, the first, I'm going to go back to my theme, situational. There are these, some of these expressions that are bang on the situation, and other times they're just totally, you know, wrong. Like, you know, life is good. Life is sweet. Not if you're sitting in bed with cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, but in your family sitting there torturing, watching this. You know, but so it's, it's a situational. I've never actually seen one that I go, this is perfect for every situation, every single time, everywhere, you know, but you know, there, there are a lot of them that I do like that I, um, that are, you know, generally been inspiring for me. So at work, we say, for example, I learned this from the same guy I told you, Brendan Calder, the president of First Line, big guru in management without having ever written a book about it. But he used to say, you either grow or you rot. And it's an analogy on a tree. A tree only has two states. It's growing or it's rotting. There is no in-between. So every tree you know is either still growing or on its way to death. So it's an expression about our culture. You grow or you rot. Keep learning. Keep growing. It's a, I like that one. You know, it's, I, re, I really like that one. Um, so, again, it's a situation all of that. But, but the second part of that is I've never had an expression I couldn't stand, but I've had a word I can't stand. Oh, really? And I, yeah. And that's can't. We can't. can't do that. Yeah, we can't do that. No, we can't. Or, or no, like only these big, strong, negative words can't. Uh, you know, at the one company I was with many years ago, I said, "No more can't. You can't say can't." Is what we said. <laughs> say it another way. Say if you know. Say here's what would have to happen in order that to happen, and let us all decide. We are unwilling to do that. It's not can't. Ah, oh, I like that. It, 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 it's it can't is such a negative. It shuts down so many things. Or the word no. You think we can do this? No. You know, can we have a little thought about it? Well, it's too hard. No, can't do it. Oh, you know. Um, so we've had actual sessions that we. I've copied the same thing a few times. We call it beat ups, where you bring in people who can help you beat up a topic. So you can get the best brains behind it. Mm-hmm. So occasionally we'll say you can't use the word can't, you can't use the word no, and just let the let the creativity flow for a while. Now you know, often if it's a very very difficult task, we won't do it. But it's nice to know why not and 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 understand what's required before just can't because can't's a state of mind. Can't do it. I, I oh, okay. Pre- I particularly like what you said, we are unwilling to do that. Cause I think that is a really important recognition that we sort of fall back on saying, well, that's not possible when really what in many cases being said is that we are unwilling to put in the work necessary uh, or yeah. 
we're unwilling to dedicate the resources necessary. So I think that's a really important recognition. I like that a lot uh, because I often will say, uh, I'll talk about culture change. I'll talk about living by values and identifying things you want to stand for. And I've had people say, I think that's unrealistic. And my answer is generally, no, it's hard. There's a difference. All right. I agree with you. And and the problem is most people are conditioned from a very, uh, you can't do that. You can't jump off that. You can't, you can't drive a car until you're 60. You can't, can't. It's so ingrained in our, in our, in our growing up years that it becomes our response. No, I can't do that. You know, um, so it opens a lot if you can eliminate those words from conference. I wish those two words could become illegal. No and can't. And if you ever want to see a place that doesn't say the word no, I'm not plugging them, go on a Disney cruise line. Really? They are amazing. Uh, I've been on it five times, and I've never heard any staff. I, I wonder if they're trained. I've been curious if they're trained. They never say no. You can have the oddest request, and they always say, I'll see what I can do. That is a really and, interesting and they either question. Do it or they come back and say, this is the best we could do. But they never know say we can do it. So I, I don't know if they're trained or not, but Disney, and, Disney itself fascinates me uh, about their customer service. But if those two words, can't and no, would be eliminated from human race, I think a lot of good stuff would happen. That's really interesting. Well, my friend, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to, to share ideas with us. I think it's, I love the, the concept that really the key is to start looking for as much really what I'm getting from talking to you is that the key is to, is, isn't to look for one way to do things. The key is to learn as much as you can so you can figure out how to apply all kinds of different solutions to a variety of, of different situations. But a couple things have really stuck out. I love the Sunday night dinner culture test. And, and I think not just maybe if you're running an organization, but yourself, ask yourself how you feel on Sunday night about answering that question. And if the answer is a bad one, then something's got to change. And if the answer is, well, I can't right now, I guess the real thing is, no, you're unwilling to. And, yep. th- and that, to me, I think is a really cool test. That's right. Nice talking to you, Drew. And that's another Day One Leadership Podcast in the books. Thanks so much, all of you, for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you could leave us a five-star review, it would mean a lot. It really does help us get traction and an even bigger audience. Is there somebody that we should be talking to either for our website, dayoneleadership.com or here on the podcast? Let us know. Send us a tweet to at dayoneleadership. That's D-A-Y, the number one and leadership. Let us know who out there in the world inspires you. Someone that you think would be great to share their insights about what they would do on day one with the rest of our listeners and readers on dayoneleadership.com. The website, day one, that's D-A-Y-O-N-E leadership.com. Every single week, we We've got blog posts, podcasts like the one you're listening to, and video blogs from myself, Drew Dudley, the founder and chief catalyst. Thank you so much, all of you, for being a part of the Day One community. We'll see you back next week.